Part 5. Execution Hour. Chapter 1. Like thieves in the night, the evacuation fleet slipped out of orbit and stole away into the stellar darkness, heading away from doomed Bellatus. Aboard the Macarius, the mood on the command deck was sombre and subdued. It had been several hours since the final wave of evacuation shuttles had docked with the cruiser inviolable retribution, carrying the last of the planet's Adeptus Arbites garrison force. In their wake had come a battered, damaged Arbites Eagle shuttlecraft, barely managing to limp its way out of the gravity well. The heavily armoured shuttle, designed for combat operations, had just managed to survive the blast wave of the explosion that had destroyed the Governor Regent's palace. Its passengers, the Arbites commander and his squad, and a handful of local dignitaries, had been the only ones to escape the destruction. It was now presumed that all the other evacuees, including Captain Semper and the Governor Regent, had perished in the explosion. Volante stood at the wide viewing bay to the rear of the command deck, mulling over the Comnet conference that had just ended between the captains of the convoy's principal warships. The conference had been short and succinct, and had not ended well, at least from Elante's point of view. Your request is denied, Macarius. You will take your place in the escort line and continue on the way to the jump point with the rest of the convoy formation. All Imperial communications had been disrupted since the arrival of the planet killer in the Bellatus system. Just one of the Chaos Weapon's many strange and unsettling technological properties which the Imperium's tech priests had so far been unable to explain. But even over the fluctuating comm channel, Alante had still been able to detect the arrogant disdain in the voice of the captain of the Graf Orlok. Titus von Blucher had always been jealous of Captain Semper's growing reputation within Battlefleet Command. Bitterly, Alante had wondered how much von Blucher's response was part of his maniacal adherence to orders and correct naval procedure, and how much was motivated by personal animosity. Next had come Erwin Ramus, his rasping, mechanical-aided voice cutting sharply through the blanket of static. Reluctantly, Drakenfels must agree with Graf Orlok. The safety of the convoy is all that matters now, more than the life of one man, even one such as Leotin Semper. We have advancing renegade ships all over our long-range surveyor screens, and maybe not so far behind them is the planet killer itself. Both my vessel and the Graf Orlok are damaged, and it's still a damnable long way to the system's edge, especially at the crawling speed those junker transports move at. Ramus's voice had softened for a moment, belaying the popular image of him as the stone-hearted, flint-edged terror of Battlefleet Gothic. Leotin was a friend of mine, Ulante, and your loyalty to him is commendable. But it's been hours now, and there's no sign of his shuttle returning from the planet's surface. The last thing he would have wanted would be for his ship to be endangered in some foolish and pointless solo action. Leotin was a fine commander, one of the best I have had the honour to serve with, but a good captain knows when to fight and when to break off. Semper was a good captain, lad. Honour his memory, and follow his example. Borodino concurs, spoke the voice of Lupus Fisk, now captain of the Lunar-class cruiser. Fisk had been a comrade of Semper's since their days together as cadets at the harsh naval training colleges on Cipramundi. There'll be other battles, Megarius, other times to avenge your former captain's memory. And so Alante 
had given the necessary orders, taking the Macarius out of Pilatus' orbit to take its place amongst the fleeing evacuation convoy. All upon the command deck had heard the Comnet conference with the other captains, and all knew he had tried his best. But it did not make Alante's sense of failure any easier to bear. He wanted confirmation that his captain was truly dead before he abandoned his orbital vigil. Now he felt as if he had betrayed both Semper and the ship itself. He watched as Bellatus receded into the distance behind the retreating evacuation convoy. It was a tomb now, he thought to himself. Not just for Semper, but for all still left alive upon it. They had less than a day to live, if the estimates of the astrogation lexamechanics were correct. For, moving through the outer system towards Bellatus, was the planet Killer, closing slowly but inexorably on its target. Long-range surveyor scans showed that most of its escort fleet were still with it, moving slowly in system at the same ponderous speed as the gargantuan vessel itself. But other vessels were speeding ahead of the main fleet, rushing to secure the target world in advance of the planet killer's arrival. Elsewhere out there, closer still, was that murder-class cruiser and its infidel escorts shadowing the trail of the retreating Imperial convoy. The Macarius was now bringing up the rear of the group, sending out attack craft patrols to shepherd lines of transport vessels into secure formation. The furthest rearward Starhawk patrols had twice come into contact with infidels, each time driving them off with fusillades of armour-piercing missiles. The enemy scout vessels were probing the convoy's defences, testing it for weaknesses as they awaited the arrival of the first reinforcements now speeding to join them. At its present speed... Agonisingly slow by the standards of a warship vessel, but as fast as many of the aged and barely space-worthy transports could manage, the convoy should be safely out of reach by the time the planet killer arrived in system. But Alante still knew that it would be a long and nerve-wracking run towards the new jump point at the system's far fringes. A bad business all round, Captain. But all that happens now does so by the will of the Emperor. Alante turned in surprise at the sound of the unfamiliar voice from behind him. Standing before him was the powerful, daunting figure of an imperial arbitrator, the gold rank flashes on his shoulder pads, and the silver imperial eagle badge, emblem on his carapace-armoured breastplate, gleaming under the command deck's low-key illumination. His helmet was removed, revealing a strong, proud face, marked with the faded pattern lines of some kind of ritualistic scarring, common amongst many of the less civilised people of the Imperium. His dark eyes shone with a keen, shrewd intelligence. The arbitrators on Necromunda had, for the most part, been brutal, unimaginative killers, often little better than the hive-trash gangers they frequently hunted down and exterminated in the labyrinths of the Underhive. This one, Melanti realised, was quite unlike such badge-wearing thugs. His name was Byzantine, Ulanti knew, the Arbites commander of the only shuttle to escape the destruction that had claimed the life of the Macarius's captain. Badly damaged and leaking fuel and air, the shuttle had had to emergency dock with the closest friendly vessel as soon as it reached high orbit, the Macarius. Now, with the convoy underway and heading at maximum possible speed towards its jump point, there had been no opportunity for him to be returned to his own vessel. You truly believe that, Marshal? I believe it is my duty to serve the Emperor's will. Even though the meaning and purpose of that will may not always be apparent to me, I am merely mortal. But the Emperor is divine. 
When I see defeat and ignominious retreat, I must believe that he sees the seeds of later victory. Where I have failed to serve him properly, I must believe that he already knows that other more able servants than I will later succeed where I have failed. Other than that, he added with a grimacing half-smile, and whenever possible, I leave the philosophizing to the ministerum's worthy brethren, and instead just try to do any duty bringing law to the lawless, heretic rabble that it pleases us to know as the Emperor's loyal subjects. Byzantine looked out of the viewing bay at the dim and receding point of light that was Bellatus. He sensed what was on the young naval officer's mind. He struck me as a capable man, your captain. He was a loyal servant of the Emperor. His death will not go unavenged. He was an officer in the Imperial Navy, answered Alante. If it was the Emperor's will that he was to die, it should have been here where he belonged, on this bridge, in command of this vessel. That is what Captain Semper would have wanted. That is the only proper death for a ship's captain. Byzantine nodded to himself, only able to agree with this naval man's sentiments. When his time came to be called to the Emperor's side, he did not wish it to come with him lying sick and dying in some Arbites precinct house infirmary, greedily fighting to hold on to the last pathetic dregs of life, like some wretched tech priest who lived on for centuries, replacing their failing human organs with machine parts, trying to deny their own mortality and turning themselves into something less than human in imitation of their damnable machine god. No, when he died, it would be as he lived with a bolt pistol in one hand and a power maul in the other, fighting the enemies of the Imperium and maintaining the iron rule of the Emperor's law. Looking through the viewing bay at the star field beyond, Byzantine thought of the comnet message he had received from court, aboard the inviolable retribution. Byzantine had always seen the strike cruiser's name as a good omen, summing up as it did his own personal belief in his role as an arbitrator. Inviolable... Retribution. The promise that, no matter the cost or risk, the guilty will always be pursued and punished. Again, Byzantine thought of the name that Court had told him, the name of the secret traitor who had betrayed the Imperium and deliberately engineered the downfall of Bellatis. His instinct about there being a chaos agent in the Governor Regent's palace had been correct, but not even he had suspected just how highly placed the traitor had been within the planet's ruling hierarchy. They were dead now, killed along with so many others during the escape from the palace, and many might consider that just punishment of a kind. Not Byzantine. He could only think that the traitor had escaped true punishment. The traitor's death during the destruction of the palace would have been swift and merciful, carrying with it none of the righteous retribution that the Emperor's stern laws required. Looking back at the retreating speck of light that was Bellatis, he realised that he and this naval officer shared something in common. Both of them had been cheated by the planet killer's arrival. For one, it was a matter of honour, the desire to not abandon hope when there was still a chance, no matter how slight, that a comrade might still be alive. For the other, it was a matter of duty, a need to know that no traitor ever escaped unpunished. But, for both of them, the ignominious flight from Bellatus represented the same thing. Unfinished business. Emperor's mercy! choked the lead armsman, recoiling back from the open mouth of the filth-choked hatchway in front of him. 
Kobakayajin brusquely pushed the man aside, but even he staggered back in revulsion at the wave of foulness that welled up from the compartment beyond. They were somewhere deep within the lower decks of the ship, moving through the maze of ancient lightless passageways and compartments that no schematic or plan of the ship's layout, no matter how old or detailed, would ever admit to. All vessels held areas like this, abandoned completely or inhabited only by the very lowest, least important crew dregs, and they were the perfect hiding place for deserters or even for the secret illicit cabals, either criminal or heretical, that often flourished aboard even the most vigilant imperial vessel. Or for stowaways, thought Kyogen. It had been suspected for some time that there was some kind of enemy stowaway aboard the Macarius, a survivor of the boarding action assaults from the Battle of Helia Free. First, there had been the outbreaks of disease amongst the crew of the lower decks, even several deaths and disappearances. The foolish and most superstitious wretches that inhabited these lowest and most dismal areas of the ship spoke in terror of a demon creature in their midst, but unnerving reports from astropath Adeptus Rapavna and navigator Solon Cassander, the two most senior Imperial psychers aboard ship, also spoke of the possibility of there being something hostile and malefic aboard the vessel. Augers had been cast, alerts sounded, and at last squads of armsmen had descended in force into the bowels of the ship. Kyogen paused before the hatchway, aware that the eyes of the crewmen were upon him, and trying not to gag at the foul stench wafting from the chill darkness beyond. The smell was indescribable, somehow seeping through the supposed protection of his rebreather mask. It carried with it the reek of corruption and decay and something else, something unknown and terrible. From beyond Kyrgyz came the soft chanting of one of the ship's ministorum preachers as he offered up prayers of protection and swung a strongly perfumed incense burner to ward off the threat of disease that hung in the foul-smelling air. The commissar considered himself to be a pious man, but in matters of protection he looked more to the chainsword in his hand and the full dozen shot cannon wielding armsmen accompanying him than one prayer-chanting and incense-burning priest. Light! Give me light! he called, climbing through the hatchway. Armsmen scrambled through after him, shining their weapon-mounted lux beams to reveal the compartment beyond. They might fear whatever might be lurking in there, but Kyogen knew they feared him even more. Aboard the Macarius, ship's commissar Kyogen was a figure of fear and respect. Mostly fear, Kyogen always thought to himself, satisfied that his role aboard ship was as it should be. Inside the compartment, several of the armsmen, the preacher amongst them, stifled gasps of shock and revulsion. Kyogen had entered charnel pits before, had seen the human devastation left by fire, vacuum and blast shock in ship's compartments destroyed during space combat, but he had never seen anything such as this and prayed that he never would again. There were bodies here, many bodies, although how many was now impossible to say, since all that remained of them was a thick, fleshy paste that had been smeared across the walls, ceiling and floor of the chamber. Jagged pieces of bone and other less recognisable but no less human and organic components jutted out from the mess, and things moved amongst it all, crawling pieces of corruption that had hatched out of the pustule-like egg clusters that grew and ripened amongst the bloody filth. 
The big Imperial Commissar saw the corruption was eating into the very stuff of the ship. Opening up brittle, flaking wounds in plasma-forged alloys made to last for centuries, metal bulkheads and pillars were shot through with streaks of decay. The whole compartment was a living canker growing within the body of the ship. Left unchecked, it would spread to consume the whole of the Macarius. Kyogen turned, about to call up the flamer units from the rear of the armsman squad, intending to scour clean the source of the chaos infestation within his vessel, when the diseased demon came at them. The lead armsman swung his shot cannon up, the beam of the lamp mounted on its barrel catching sight of something tattered and pestilent, as it rushed at him from out of the darkness, detaching itself from where it had been nesting amongst the rotted filth of its victims. The light from the Lux lamp suddenly turned red, bathing everything it illuminated in shocking tones of scarlet as the armsman's blood splashed across its crystal face, his throat ripped open by one sweep of the chaos creature's bone-shard claws. The interior of the compartment became a riot of sound and light, as the creature descended on its would-be hunters. Lux beams danced around in search of targets, and there was the strobe flash of shock cannon muzzles firing as confused and terrified armsmen shot blindly into the darkness. Five armsmen died in as many seconds, at least one of them killed by unaimed panic fire from his own comrades. Kyogen saw the demon close its clawed hand over the face of the Ministorum preacher, heard the ecclesiarch servant's falsetto shrieks of agony, a sickly yellow fluid wept from the open mouth wounds on the creature's palms, the fluid burning through the preacher's rebreather mask and into the flesh, then bone, of his face. Kaijin tore a shot cannon from the grasp of a terrified armsman, turning it on the creature and firing it on full auto-spread, mercifully blowing apart the screaming preacher. The creature staggered under the impact of the explosive shock cannon shells, its tattered flesh knitting and reforming almost as quickly as the shock cannon shells tore and ripped it apart. Kyogen looked down at the weapon's ammo counter, seeing with a shock of fear that at his current rate of fire, the shock cannon's ammunition cylinder would be completely emptied in the next few seconds, and that the demon creature showed no sign of dying before, despite the heavy damage being inflicted on it. To me, he called, rallying the surviving armsmen around him. Send this warp spawn back to the hell it crawled from. First one armsman, then another, and then a third joined their commanding officer, sending non-stop volleys of explosive head shotgun shells into the body of the demon creature. The creature reeled back, now suffering damage, at a rate faster than its body could regenerate. Under impact, from the hail of gunfire, the creature's flesh seemed to unravel itself, exposing the new horrors of its disease-warped innards to the eyes of its attackers. Kyogen's gun clicked empty. Seconds later, the weapons of the others followed suit. To their horror and disbelief, the demon instantly started to recover once more. It screeched in anger, and in response, ribbons of flesh detached themselves from the organic mess smeared onto the surfaces all around it. They reached out towards the demon, wrapping themselves round its gunfire-ravaged form, clothing it in horribly borrowed new flesh. In seconds, Kyogen knew the creature would be fully regenerated and on the attack again. Flamers! Where are those flamers? He barked. 
If you've got one, show me that you haven't forgotten how to use it. Two armsmen stumbled forward, clearly terrified of the approaching creature. Still, Kaijin's fearsome reputation terrified them even more, just as it should. And they took up position at the Commissar's command, triggering their bulky flamer weapons and playing long jets of burning Prometheum chem mix over the screaming creature. Kyogen watched the creature thrash and burn. Unfastening his gleaming leather holster, he drew his bolt pistol, aiming it at the creature, and slowly and deliberately pumping one bolter shell after another into its fire-melted form. Only when the pistol in his hand clicked empty, only when the volatile flamer fuel had completely consumed the creature, and all that remained of it was a foul, greasy stink hanging thickly in the air of the chamber did he finally cease fire. The compartment would have to be scoured free of the chaos contamination that had taken root here, and after that the area would be ritually purified by the ship's appointed ministorum confessor, and then probably sealed off and quarantined for a period that might stretch into decades. But for now, Commissar Kyogen was satisfied that he had done his duty. Reholstering his sidearm, he activated his communicator. This deep below decks, the comlink with the command deck more than three dozen decks overhead, crackled and buzzed with interference from the ship's power systems and dense hull structure. Gaijin to command deck. Mission accomplished. Acting Captain Alante will have my full report before the end of this quarter-day cycle. But the contamination has been found and eradicated. Tens of millions of kilometres distant, Bullus Cyril finally broke off psychic contact with his plague-spawn, sensing the last of its spirit fade back into the warp, just as the glowing phosphorus flames consumed the last of its corporeal form. The effort of maintaining the active psychic link with his distant child was taxing in the extreme, especially over such vast physical distances, but Cyril found the experience to be joyously rewarding. Confined to the bridge of the Verulant by the nature of the plague gifts and body-altering mutations that Grandfather Nurgle, in his munificence, had bestowed upon him, Cyril had almost forgotten the vicarious pleasure of close-quarters combat, and, after so long viewing battles on a ship's surveyor screen, it had been a bloody-edged thrill to experience through the mind of the plague creature the sensation of killing at close range, with claws and teeth. Besides, he half-smiled to himself, what proud parent couldn't be excused for indulging itself in a few precious moments of enjoyment at the precocious deeds of one of its own children? Although the plague vessel's captain had severed the link with the vanquished chaos demon, he did not yet allow his mystic warp gaze to rejoin his resting body. Instead, he probed deeper into the innards of the enemy's ship, searching through ducts and conduits, pipeways and maintenance shafts, instinctively homing in on the mind of the other creature now crawling through these cramped and secret byways. His other plague child, the glistening, newly birthed twin to the one now killed by the weak and foolish imperial scum. On its own, the first creature had at first busied itself spreading its plague gifts amongst the crew of the imperial vessel, but its actions, while pure in motive, had been blind and instinctive, lacking direction and planning, its presence aboard their vessel had been detected too early by the weakling humans, and so it had to be sacrificed. It was an old and brutally expedient naval ruse, Cyril knew. Sacrifice one vessel to the guns of the enemy, creating a diversion and allowing another vessel to pass undetected through their defences. Making contact with the newborn, 
as Cyril spoke to it in its mind, soothing and comforting it. It was weak and vulnerable, but there was one important task that he required of it. He suddenly relinquished contact, his mind snapping back aboard the bridge of his vessel as, irritated, he became aware that there were matters that required his attention. Signal from the main fleet, Lord, reported his unctuous new second-in-command. We are commanded to reduce speed and rejoin the second rank of escorts protecting the War Master's vessel's starboard flank. Maintain present speed and heading, ordered Cyril, fighting down a wave of dangerous irritation, knowing that he must keep his mind clear of strong emotion if he was to maintain the fragile link with the newborn aboard the Macarius. But my lord, the War Master himself commands... The second-in-command's bleating objections were silenced by Cyril's angry hiss, nesting at their master's feet, playing amongst the festering filth that littered the floor of the plagued vessel's command deck. The swarm of Nurgle's spawn yelped in sudden excitement, perhaps sensing another unexpected treat that might soon come their way, gifted to them by their master's anger. We obey the will of Grandfather Nurgle, not the war master, warned Cyril. You will do well to remember that if you are to remain in my service for very much longer. Continue on course. Our target and objective is the Macarius. This time, the second-in-command's tone was measured and respectful, carefully free of any hint of criticism or reproach. This one learns fast, mused Cyril. Perhaps if he continues like this... He might even live out the rest of the year. The Macarius is amongst the rest of the enemy convoy, Lord, heading directly away from us and the rest of the War Master's fleet. Even at our current speed, it is unlikely that we will catch it before it reaches the edge of the system and escapes into the warp. Perhaps not, thought Cyril, revising his earlier estimates of his second-in-command's life expectancy chances. Perhaps not even the duration of this current voyage. Fool! Attend to your charts and estimates. Meanwhile, I will prepare to do the grandfather's bidding and bring his vengeance upon those that have already defied him twice already now. The Macarius shall not escape us again. The Plague Father and I will see to it. Cyril closed his eyes in concentration, focusing again on the faint psychic aura of the demon-spawn creature aboard the enemy cruiser. It had a hard and dangerous journey ahead of it, crawling through the kilometres of pipes and conduits that twisted through the entire gargantuan bulk of the warship. But already Cyril could sense the signs of the creature's eventual destination, and he guided it in that direction accordingly, towards the source of the heavy, deep-set vibrations that shuddered along the length of the ship's hull from its main drive engines, towards the source of the growing blasts of heat that swept through the maze of conduits from the heart of the ship's power systems, towards the vital and highly vulnerable Generarium Core that powered the Macarius's engines, weapons and defences. Chapter 2 Anything? Semper bent down to peer into the exposed mechanics of the Cathedral Vox Arc, watching as the nimble, surgically adapted hands of the tech priest sifted through the tangle of wiring and rune-covered circuit boards, 
Despite the tech priest's best efforts, the gargoyle speakers atop the ark remained stubbornly silent, emitting only a low, steady snarl of static. Nothing, sir, answered Caparian, wincing from the pain from his injured, sling-held arm as he tried to stand to attention in the presence of his captain. Semper waved off such formalities under the circumstances, with them all probably only a day or so away from extinction. Normal naval protocol now seems strangely unnecessary. It's working, but we can't send or receive anything. Looks like we're on our own, after all. Semper cursed. The comm systems aboard the shuttle were destroyed, and his personal voxcaster was only good at short, sub-orbital ranges. But the cathedral's powerful vox arc, linked into the miraculously unscathed antenna of the building's cloud-piercing spire, should be able to reach anything within the borders of the planetary system. Looking at the bronze-sculpted features of the arc's ornamental speaker, listening to the strange, almost rhythmic bursts of static emanating from it, a disquieting thought occurred to Semper. Tech adept, could it be that our signals are being somehow jammed or blocked? There have been unconfirmed reports that worlds targeted by the planet killer experienced planet-wide communications blackouts shortly before they're attacked. Could this be what we are encountering now? Shanyan Ko paused to consider the question in that strange, considered way distinctive to so many members of the Adeptus Mechanicus. Unlike many of his brethren, the Starhawk Tech Adept was unmasked, but perhaps he felt no need to be so. At some point in the past, the tech priest's face had been removed, and Semper could clearly see the surgical scars left by the procedure. Beneath the man's paper-like skin, patterns of gold and platinum wire circuit diagrams had been woven into the bone and musculature of his skull prior to his skin being grafted back on again, giving the adept's face an eerie, death-mask-like appearance. That would be the most likely possibility, Captain. Ventured Co. after consulting whatever augmented thought processes the Mechanicus Surgeon Priests of Mars had gifted him with. However, the power and jamming systems required to effect a total planet-wide communication blackout from that far out in space would be... The tech adeb's voice tailed away in confusion. Semper and Caparian exchanged glances. It was not often that one of the servants of the Machine God was lost for words when discussing technical computations, but the forces of the Imperium had never faced a weapon such as Abaddon's planet killer before. Just one of the many, many things we still don't know about, this new weapon's capabilities, grunted Semper. And how are we to learn anything about it, replied Caparian, if all we do is turn and run away from it every time it is used against us? You suggest attacking from a position of ignorance, Squadron Commander, Squandering precious and thinly stretched military resources against a target that has so far proven invulnerable. Ulante would have recognised this favourite tactic of Semper's, but Caparian had little direct experience with his ship's captain and did not realise that he was being tested. Invulnerable, answered Caparian, refusing to be cowed by his captain's tone. Only because we refused to put that legend to the test, I faced supposedly unbeatable foes, and their super weapons before. When I was a novice pilot, we were told by the tutors at the Flight Academy that there was nothing in the Imperium's armories to match the capabilities of the attack craft of the Eldar. Maybe that was true once, 
but we developed new tactics to deal with those alien ghosts, and now I've lost count of how many debris clouds from destroyed Eldar Corsair fighters I've seen splashed across my cockpit surveyor screens. New tactics, Captain, and a willingness not to believe a damned word any time anyone tells you anything about invincible enemies and their unbeatable weapons. That's all it takes. Semper clapped Caparion on his uninjured shoulder, favouring the surprised-looking Starhawk commander with a grim smile. I agree wholeheartedly, Captain. Would that there were more at Battlefleet Command who thought the same as you and I. We need more men like this, thought Semper. More men like this Starhawk commander and that Imperial preacher, if we are to win this war. Men who simply do their duty to the Emperor without wasting time considering the enemy's supposed invincibility or in counting the odds against them. In considering his own position, Semper had to acknowledge that the odds were certainly against him. But that did not stop him trying to continue to do his duty, despite the circumstances. A day ago, he mused, he had commanded one of his Divine Majesty's mighty warships, with a crew of ten thousand under him. Now he was here, trapped on the surface of a world destined for destruction, taking refuge with these ragged and ill-equipped pilgrims, and with scarcely half a dozen naval crewmen left to command. They had survived the shuttle crash, but not without cost. The reinforced armoured shell of the shuttle's passenger cabin had functioned as intended, with its occupants suffering on the most part nothing more serious than a few broken bones, but the rest of the shuttle had not withstood the impact of the landing so well, and neither had its crew. Caparion's co-pilot had been crushed against the brass and bronze levers and fittings of his cockpit instrumentation panel, and now lay injured, probably dying, in the cathedral infirmary below. The corpses of the nose turret gunners were still trapped within the remains of the shuttle's smashed front. Caparion himself had suffered a fractured arm and had been lucky to avoid being crushed to death amongst the tangled wreckage of the destroyed cockpit. But by far, the worst of the casualties had been the shuttle crewmen stationed in the craft's cargo compartments and belly gun turret. Killed instantly on impact as the shuttle struck the ground and ploughed across the stone surface of the cathedral square, completely ripping away its underside. Even the craft's complement of servitors was no more, dying at the same time as the onboard power systems that they had been plugged directly into. Now, besides Caparian and Co., the only other crew of the Macarius left under Semper's command was Caparian's barbaric tailgunner Daksha and Barossa and Ran, Semper's two remaining petty officer bodyguards. Six men, so much for having one foot on the steps of the Golden Throne, he thought to himself wryly. Co gathered up his tools and resealed the instrumentation panels of the Vox Ark, intoning the necessary purification rites as he did so. Together, he, Semper and Caparian descended the narrow stone stairs back down to the main hall of the cathedral. There they found the ecclesiarch preacher Devane and a group of his frataris followers kneeling in a huddled circle around the altar of a side chapel. Semper would have guessed they were praying or conducting some kind of sacred ministorum rite, but as he came closer he recognised the situation for what it truly was, a pre-battle briefing. Devane was issuing orders to the leaders of the frataris combat squads, the faces of the assembled men and several women were tight with concentration as they listened urgently to their commander's instructions. Like most officers of the Imperial military, Semper thought of the forces of the Frateris militia 
as a disorganised, ill-disciplined rabble, only to be used to wage the Emperor's wars in the last resort, in want of other, more professional and dependable forces. Now seeing the determined looks on the faces of these warriors as they prepared once more for battle, knowing, whether they were victorious or not, that they still faced imminent death, Semper realised that he would willingly exchange these Frataris brethren for any few thousand of his own crew. The Imperial Preacher glanced up at the approach of the Navy men. He looked expectantly at Semper, but the look in his eyes suggested that he already knew the answer to his unspoken question. It would seem, Preacher Divine, that my men and I will be remaining here rather longer than we imagined, confirmed Semper with a wry smile. We are at your command. What would you have us do? The spotters on the barricades say that the heretics are massing again on both the northern and eastern sides of the square, no doubt getting ready to attack us again. We'll need every able-bodied servant of the Emperor we can get on those barricades when they do. Devane broke off, staring doubtfully at the bloody and bandaged figures of the navy men, especially at Semper's full-dress uniform, now smeared with blood and grime. He indicated the sheathed sabre and holstered las pistol that Semper wore along with his ceremonial crimson cummerbund. You know how to use those things. Semper drew the sabre, showing Devane the sword blade's gleaming, razor-tempered edge. I'll admit it's been a while, Confessor Devane, but I haven't always merely seen combat from the bridge of a warship. He smiled thinly, touching first the jagged, ancient scar that split one side of his face. And then, the distinctive Order of the Gothic Star decoration on his tunic breast. After all, how else do you think I earn these? Very well. I'll take the north side, you take the east. We're short of warm bodies on the east barricades. But I'll try and send you whatever we can spare from the south and west sides. No need to risk weakening our defences elsewhere, Confessor. If they attack us on the north and east... It might only be as feints to make us draw defenders away from our other flanks. Don't worry, though. I know where I can find a few extra bodies to fill the gaps in my line. Devane followed Semper's gaze, looking over to a side chapel off the main cathedral floor. A group of figures sat there, shying away from the rest of the mass of wretched humanity huddled all around. A line of tall, armed guardsmen in palace guard uniforms, making sure that none of the pilgrims approached the group sheltering in the side chapel. Devane looked back at Semper, sharing his smile. The Governor Regent has several times expressed just how much he shares his people's suffering. If he suffers with them, I'm sure he wouldn't mind fighting alongside them either. The great and the good of Bellatus' aristocracy took some convincing before coming round to Semper's way of thinking. Maxim Barossa broke the wrist of the first guard officer who tried to bar Semper's way as the Macarius captain marched up towards the assembled dignitaries. When the second tried to draw his las pistol on Semper, Maxim merely took the weapon off the man and used it to club its owner unconscious, mindful of Semper's instructions to do as little crippling damage as possible to anyone who tried to stop him. They would, after all, be needing these men soon enough in the defence of the cathedral barricades. A warning stare from the hulking hive-worlder, backed up by the weapons in the hands of Caparian, Daksha and several of Devane's Frataris brethren, quickly dissuaded the rest of the Governor Regent's bodyguards from any further interference. What is the meaning of this? spluttered First Minister Kale, standing to face Semper. Behind him, Saro huddled with his sister, 
clutching at his chain of regal office, as if it were some protective talisman that could ward off the awful reality of the situation that the governor-regent now found himself in. Sarrow's eyes were wide with disbelief, his shell-shocked gaze that of a man, trying to convince himself that none of this was really happening. Semper had seen that look many times before, mostly on the faces of Navy press-gang victims as they were brought unconscious aboard ship and awoke to find themselves unwilling new recruits of his Divine Majesty's Imperial Navy, condemned to a brutal and often short-lived slave existence aboard the strange and dangerous surroundings of an Imperial warship, doomed never to see their friends, family and entire homeworld again. His Highness the Governor-Regent is still the Emperor's appointed representative and is still in command here, Captain, continued Kale, with all the false dignity and authority that he could manage. By all means, take what few men we can spare from his personal guard, but you surely can't expect any of the rest of us to fight. I can and I do, replied Semper, gesturing at the ranks of the Frataris around them. The light of the Emperor has been withdrawn from this world. The protection of the Imperium is gone. Rank and privilege mean nothing now. Take a look around you, Kale. Take a look at these people. They are the poor and low-born of this world. Their kind come for nothing to the likes of the Emperor's worthiest servants, to the ministers and governors of the Emperor's worlds and the commanders of the Emperor's fleets. And yet their dedication to the service of the Master of Mankind shames us all. They have been fighting here for days. They know they are soon to die, and yet still they keep on fighting. This is the Emperor's house, and we are still his servants. What other choice do we have but to join them in this final duty? Behind Semper, Kale and the others saw only the sullen, hostile stares of the Frataris. Devane had gathered his flock from amongst the populations of the impoverished rural districts, far from the prosperous planetary capital. To these simple, emperor-faring people, Governor-Regent Saro and the rest of the planetary nobility were remote and obscure figures, decadent and debauched aristocrats of the kind that imperial preachers frequently railed against from the pulpits of their rural parish churches. Most of the wealth and all of the power of Bellatus was concentrated in its capital of Medina, and many of the Frataris peasants here would have come from ancestral estates owned by the nobles, ancestral estates which many of those nobles would never even have visited, seeing them merely as distant but useful additional sources of income, appointing harsh and merciless estate managers to squeeze every extra piece of worth out of these agricultural lands and the peasants who were expected to work them. No, clearly the people here bore little love for Governor Regent Sarrow and the rest of the ruling elite of Bellatus, and Kale's insistence on the Governor-Regent's continued authority would find few supporters amongst them. Sarrow's bodyguards, sensing the increasingly tense mood in the chapel, and completely outnumbered by the Frataris facing them, shifted nervously, their fingers edging towards the firing studs of their las weapons. It was the Lady Melissa stepping forward into the firing line between the two groups, gesturing to her brother's bodyguard to lower their weapons, who diffused the situation. We are all fellow Bellatocytes here, Captain, all loyal servants of his divine majesty. Our nobles and guards will be glad to serve alongside Confessor Devane's brave Frataris brethren in their defence of this holy place. I and my servants will be glad to serve alongside the Sororitas sisters in the infirmary, tending to the injured and dying. All I ask, she said, stepping forward towards Semper, 
her voice softening as she indicated with a subtle and graceful gesture back towards the quivering form of the Governor-Regent. Is that my brother be excused for the moment from taking his place with the other defenders? The events of this last day and the suffering of his people have temporarily disordered his mind, but he will find solace here in the Emperor's house, and I feel sure when the final time comes he will be ready to take his ordained place amongst his beloved subjects on the barricades. Semper nodded in acquiescence, realising, as Byzantine had before him, that it was the House of Saro's misfortune and the planet of Bellatus as a whole that the local laws of regal succession did not allow a woman to sit on the Governor Regent's throne. General Brod, his uniform stiff with dried blood from his shoulder wound, came forward to organise the remaining troops and nobles. Other than the bandage sling he wore on his injured arm, Brod had refused all medical attention, refused to be given a place amongst the rest of the wounded, even though it was plain to see that he was in much pain. Barking hoarse voiced orders, and supported by one of his few remaining aides, he moved stiffly through the throng, pausing to rearrange the details of his uniform. To Semper, he looked like a man who had failed once in his duty, and was determined not to do so again. He looked, thought Semper, like a man preparing to buy back his honour, at the willing price of his own life. Looking round, Semper also saw a Frataris cloaked figure stealing away from the main group, lurking behind the side chapel's holy statuary. Adept, Hyuga, called Semper. Eager for battle so soon? No need to join the ranks of the Frataris brethren. I will be honoured to have you with me on the eastern barricades in the first line of defenders. Even as the Macarius captain spoke, Maxim Barossa materialised in the Munitorum Adept's path, pulling away the tattered cloak disguised to reveal the rows of glittering decorations on the terrified Munitorum official's gaudy uniform tunic and the ornate, hand-crafted Laz pistol tucked into his waist sash. In panic, Ayuga reached for the pistol, squealing in pain as Maxim's huge paw-like hand shot out and seized his wrist, almost crushing it. Nice gun, Maxim growled, taking the weapon off the official and studying it with a practised eye. Studied with gems and made from finely wrought platinum and other precious metals, the pistol was probably worth enough to equip an entire company of Imperial Guard, and, decorative toy that it was, would probably explode the first time it was actually fired, thought Maxim. Deftly tucking the pistol into his own belt, Maxim selected a heavy stubber handgun from the brace of pistols he himself wore in a bandolier across his chest. Here, have a real weapon instead, he said, pressing it into Hayuga's hand. It's not as pretty as yours, but it'll do the job a whole lot better than that little thing. Semper called out to Maxim. Petty officer Barossa. We can't have the Lord Adept wandering off and getting himself injured. I'm detailing you to watch over him. Make sure he never leaves your side, no matter what happens. Gladly, sir, growled Maxim, grinning down at Hayuga, relishing the Adept's fear. Maxim had been at the mercy of men such as Hayuga all his life. The high and mighty lords of the Imperium, who decided the fates of millions, often on an apparent whim. On Stranovar, it had been men such as Hayuga who had sent the arbitrators down Hive to conduct a brutal cull of the population of the lower levels. Tens of thousands had been killed, thousands more rounded up and consigned to the labour camps on the prison moon Lubyanka, Maxim amongst them, 
And again, it had been a munitorum official such as Hyuga, perhaps even Hyuga himself, who had issued the orders that would have eventually led to Maxim being press-ganged into the Imperial Navy and ending up aboard the Macarius, as the gulag camps of Lubyanka were emptied to provide fresh fodder to try and stem the ever-increasing crew casualties suffered by Battlefleet Gothic. Men such as this had always been in command, controlling Maxim's destiny from afar. Now at last, he was able to look one of them in the face. He was not best impressed with what he saw. Cheer up, Lord Adept, he grinned at the cringing senior bureaucrat, unaware that he was almost directly echoing the earlier words and sentiments of Commissar Kyogen. Fight well, and maybe you'll die earning the right to wear one of those fancy baubles on your chest. Who knows, if you put up a good enough fight, maybe I'll even think about giving you some bullets to load into that gun I just gave you. Nearby, amongst the remaining nobles and dignitaries, one mind did not share the same concerns as the others around it. Those other, lesser minds were filled with a mixture of emotions. Fear, confusion, pious devotion, a grim determination to do their duty to the bitter end. This mind felt none of these things. It only thought of how it could escape this situation or turn it to its advantage, as it had turned so many other accidents and incidents to its advantage, and to the advantage of the powers of the war. Yes, something had clearly gone wrong, realised the owner of that most cold and incisive of minds. That fat fool, Saro, had delayed their escape from the palace too long, and somehow missiles that should have been targeted at the evacuation transports and the Arbites courthouse had instead been sent to destroy the governor's palace, and the owner of the mind had almost been killed, along with so many others. Particularly galling was the fact that it was only through the clandestine efforts of the mine's owner that the forces of the Faceless One even had the arming codes that had allowed them to retarget and fire the missiles in the first place. Lesser, more feeble intellects would have suspected betrayal, one of the tricks and falsehoods that the fools of the Ministorum would have all believed were typical of one of the powers of the warp, but this mind knew better. It simply had too much to offer its new masters, and, once safely away from this miserable, warp-begotten rock, would yet prove to be an invaluable agent to the cause of chaos, working from within the ranks of the Imperium to ensure the final victory of the forces of the Despoiler here within the Gothic sector. For the traitor had no doubt that it would escape the fate that would befall the rest of Bellatus, just as it had no doubt that chaos would finally prevail in this war. The escape from the palace had been a close thing, but it realised now that its survival had all along been preordained. The powers of chaos were watching over the life of their new and faithful servant, for it was, it knew, simply too valuable an asset to their cause to be left to die with the rest of these fools. And of course, the faceless one was still here, and it was clear that a being as cunning and powerful as a champion of chaos would not allow itself to be destroyed along with the rest when the planet killer finally hung in the heavens above the doomed world. The faceless one would have his escape already prepared and would take his most useful and valuable allies with him. The traitor was sure of it. All it had to do, it knew, was be patient and wait for whatever means of escape its new chaos masters had prepared for it. From all over Medina they came, like rats scurrying through the ruins of the dying city to answer the call of the faceless one. 
the insane and the blood-crazed, subsuming themselves completely to the aura of madness that now hung over the doomed world, the weak and the foolish, still believing against all available evidence that the powers of chaos would somehow spare them in return for their new-sworn loyalty, the faithful and devout, commending their souls to the ever-hungry powers of the warp, all too eager to give up their lives at the whim and command of their uncaring demonic overlords. Khoisan, the Faceless, did not care why his army of followers came to die, and die they would, either now or in less than a day's time, just as long as they did so obediently and at his command. Looking out over the corpse-strewn ruins of the cathedral square, he sensed the invisible energies stirring around him. Through the warp, bleeding through the surface skin of reality, he felt the rippling currents of energy that announced the presence of the planet killer, now within the planetary system and approaching its target. Inside him, he sensed his body preparing for its final, glorious transformation. The rhythms of his imminent metamorphosis, building in sync with the growing, almost palpable sensations of the planet killer's approach. And now, from across the square... From amongst the milling, pitiful throng of the defenders of the House of the False Emperor, Khoisan sensed something else. Perhaps the reason some intuitive sense had drawn him here in the first place. Some other new task was expected of him here, Khoisan realised. The powers of the warp still required one final act of obedience to their will before his ascendance would be complete. Khoisan concentrated for a second, allowing that aspect of the blood god which he had accepted into his flesh to manifest itself. He smiled, running a long, drooling tongue over newly formed lips and fangs, relishing the hot rush of bloodlust that welled up unbidden from within him. He raised a hand that had now been transformed into a scale-covered, blood-dripping claw, pointing the blade of his power sword at the line of defenders sheltering behind the cover of the barricades. The blood god is angry! He awakens and calls for nourishment! He snarled, in a string of guttural barks that no human throat could ever have produced. Go! Feed him! Gunfire. He could hear gunfire coming from somewhere below. The Cathedral Square, perhaps. But why would there be gunfire coming from there? Perhaps Leto would know. He would ask the boy when he finally got here. And where was that emperor-forsaken young fool anyway? Sobek had been ringing the bell to summon his novice savant for what seemed like an eternity, and there was still no sign of... Leto. In his mind's eye... The astropath saw the face of his novice initiate, his screaming features suddenly illuminated in a flash of star-hot light. He saw plasma fire engulfing the Barbican towers of a star vessel. And then he remembered. Leto was dead. Bellatus was now without the light of the Emperor, had been abandoned to the enemy. The planet killer was here, now almost upon them. Sobek could feel its leviathan presence pressing against the barriers of his mind, its all-consuming shadow blotting out the greater part of his mystical vision. Its all-consuming shadow blotting out the greater part of his mystic vision. The aftermath of its arrival out of the warp, psychic shockwaves rippling out to touch the minds of every sentient being in the Blatter system had almost overwhelmed Sobek's formidable mental defences. A less experienced astropath might have been killed by the experience, and as it was, Sobek knew 
that he had suffered a stroke, several perhaps, triggered by the effects of the psychic shockwave. He knew that he was probably dying, that parts of his mind were already dead or dying, that his memory and mystic vision were already starting to fail him. Still, aged as he was, he was a psyker. His power fortified by the agonies of the soul-bonding rites with the mind of the god-emperor himself. And a psycho was far more than mere weak flesh and blood. The emperor still required one more task of him before he was allowed to die. Gathering his failing strength, Sobek staggered to his feet, making for the doorway out of his chamber and the corridor beyond. His inner vision was dimmed, its clarity and range curtailed by the spreading damage to his brain. But he had walked this way countless times before. He knew every flagstone beneath his sandaled feet, every turn of the corridor and worn step of the descending stairs beyond. He had walked these chambers and halls for the last sixty-eight years. Even truly blind and without his psychic gift, he could have found his way through them with ease. Now he travelled this way for the last time, leaving the chamber where he had lived for nearly seven decades and heading down towards the main body of the cathedral. Towards the sound of the gunfire. Right, so everybody, hope you've enjoyed this. I don't know what I just said there. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you've enjoyed... That's you See, this is why I edit things, because this is what it kind of sounds like when I'm recording. I have to go over the same lines multiple times, as some of you may know. Anyway, hello, everybody. Thank you for watching. Uh, for everybody who's been supporting the channel... Oh, God, I can't speak. My mouth's gone. For those of you who've been like... Oh! For those of you who've been supporting the channel, your names are going by now. Like, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you all very much. I really appreciate it. Honestly, I do. And uh, it really helps. And, um, you know, the more support I get, the more work I can do on this. You know what I mean? So uh, I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I hope you are enjoying the stuff. You, you seem to be because you're still supporting the channel. So, cool. Uh, if you would like to support the channel and uh, the work I do, and all the new stuff that's coming as we progress for the rest of the year on a sort of timely, normal channel, a no 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 normal time schedule, like a regular, normal YouTuber, then please do consider supporting the channel uh, as becoming a YouTube member or using the links in the description, various different ways, and uh, whatever you do, I'll really appreciate it. Anyway, if you can't do that, please do give uh, the video a like and subscribe if you're not subscribed, and share the video if you think you know anyone who might enjoy it. Right, that was a, that was difficult to say. Ugh. All right, so we've got about two more parts left of this. I hope you are enjoying it. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's such a nostalgia thing to just go through this, because I mean, I haven't read this since I was young, you know what I mean? Young, like early teens, probably. I can't remember the year. I don't know. Memories of a time from long ago. All that stuff. All right. I'll catch you in a bit. Have a good one. Ta-ra. Remember, the Emperor protects. Boom! That was a terrible ending. Um, see you later. Ta-ra.